is our business really going to exist in the way which it was doing business in 2019? And any sane executive will probably conclude not. Hello and welcome to The Growth Business, a business podcast sponsored by InCloud Solutions, the centre of excellence for mid-market SAP software, business by design. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Peter Fisk, who is a global thought leader, best-selling author and inspiring speaker. He's written many excellent business books and his latest, Business Recoded, is out now. He's a professor of leadership, strategy and innovation, but also helps clients around the world in a most practical sense to understand fast changing markets as founder and CEO of consulting firm Genius Works. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Great to be here. Nice to see you, Lucy. Nice to see you. Now, you trained famously as a nuclear physicist, not the most obvious start um, for a global authority on business. Just tell me a little bit about how that came about. Well, um, when I was young, when I was going to university, I was, I, was, I was curious about the world. I wanted to understand how the world worked. And, um, and physics is all about how the natural world works. And so that's what got me into physics. And then and my curiosity quickly took me into understanding the, the fundamentals behind it, what drives it. But that took me to a world of um, superconductivity, which is how um, molecules and atoms particularly behave um, in their most fundamental state when you cool them down to minus uh, 270 degrees centigrade. And so that's where I kind of like um, spent uh, most of my youth um, under, under the mountains and really trying to understand how, how atoms behave in their extreme conditions. And, um, and it was fascinating but it was the most boring thing in the world ever. And so um, I decided this was not the world for me. I wasn't going to just tweak a few kind of conditions and then watch the experiment run again and again every different week and maybe one day write a report about, about it. I wanted to do something a bit more fast moving, a bit more human and a bit more creative. So I kind of looked around and, um, I, and I saw the world of marketing and I, uh, I was particularly attracted to British Airways at the time. And so within the next five years, I was managing brands like Concord, and, uh, and Club World and so on. And really that was, um, it was marketing and it was branding, but it was also about customers. And uh, this was my foundation in business and really understanding the customer experience is the starting point. But really thinking about what is it, the, the emotional passion which a customer has when they're standing to board a Concorde plane, for example. So for part of the people, it's about speed and it's about kind of efficiency. For other people, it's about luxury. And so everybody's different. Um, and everybody wants something more than just a seat. And so those kinds of thinking, which we kind of regard as customer-centric thinking today, were the starting points for me of business. And you know, I think as I've gone through the last 30 years, that's stood with me in terms of thinking, how do you build a, a customer-centric business, uh, which is human, uh, which delivers fantastic products, of course, and, and makes money as a result of that, but starts from the point of view of how can you make people's dreams come true. So where did that customer-centric thinking take you? It really kind of shaped um, how I thought beyond that because you know I then started in marketing and um, what it really got to me was that I could, I could do the kind of the, the, the analytical stuff, I could do the mathematics, I could do the spreadsheets. But what I really enjoyed was the human intuitive creative stuff at the same time. When I came to writing my first book, um, in 2004, which was called Marketing Genius, the publisher said to me, write something a bit more personal, write something about you. And I wanted to write about growth. I wanted to write about high performance. I wanted to write about kind of marketing. Um, but the thing which was personal to me, actually, 
was this kind of this left hand logical experience I'd had in the physics lab and this right hand more intuitive experience I'd had in, in, in the business world. And this combination of left brain, right brain was really kind of what got me going. And um, my first book was subtitled, How Would um, Einstein and Picasso Do Business Today? It's a bit of Einstein, it was a bit of Picasso. Einstein kind of reflected the left brain thinking, logic thinking, and, and, and Picasso reflected the right brain thinking. But actually, when I researched these two characters, Einstein was terrible at mathematics. And so he wasn't a logical thinker at all. He was a much more intuitive thinker, but he'd married a very successful mathematician and so she did the calculations, which led to E equals MC squared. He just knew that there was some kind of connection between E and M. And so he did the hypothesis, and then she did the kind of the, 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 the fine detail. And likewise, Picasso, you know, we think of him as a crazy artist, but actually he studied um, geometry. So angles and mathematics of, of perspective. And so that's what allowed him to make the shift from impressionism, how he trained, to a world of cubism. Uh, because he saw the world differently and had he had this different perspective to his art. So I think just concluding the kind of the the, the origin story for me, um, this this kind of crossover between left brain, right brain, analytical and creative really allows you to see the world from different perspectives, but together in a better perspective. So when you're working with this impressive roster of companies and these amazing business leaders, is that what you're telling them? That in order to be innovative, for example, they need to use both parts of their brain? What we do really working with, with companies is, is really getting teams of people, typically the top teams, the executive teams, to come together and, and, and actually spend some time thinking about where they're going in the future. And they spend so much time in their own silos, in their own functions, with their heads down looking at what they're doing at the moment, and with their heads looking backwards, looking at what they did last year or, or even further back. The problem with most companies is that they're, they're rooted in where they come from, and they're rooted in what they've done in the past, and the success models which made them successful in the past. And when you find a success mo model which you know, is good for you, you're scared to let go of it, and that goes for an individual or for a company. And if you look at most large, successful companies of the last decade, you know, they're still trying to do the same thing which made them successful 10 or 20 years ago. You know, companies like GE, for example. And, and, and companies like GE have really kind of lost their way. You know, America is not the most dominant market in the world. You can't just kind of push products at people in the way in which you used to be able to uh, in the past. Therefore, the analytical thinking and the data is, tends to be based on what you've done as opposed to what you're going to do. The data is only so successful uh, in terms of navigating the future. You then need to be intuitive. And so then I get kind of business leaders to think about, well, where would you love to go? How do you think markets are changing more intuitively? What do you think are the big trends which are shaping things? What are the new pockets of opportunity, if you like, the new market spaces which are opening up? What are the changing needs of consumers? So all of the more qualitative, non-numeric things, but forward-looking aspects. And if you combine those two sides together, they want some proof that they're going in the right direction, which can come through kind of retrospective analysis in terms of, well, are you kind of making the logical decisions? Um, but at the same time, they need to be able to leap out of their existing frame of reference. They need to be able to leap forward, and that requires 
a more intuitive hypothesis-driven approach to, to where you go next. I'm really interested in how things have changed um, in terms of your work, maybe between the books Game Changers and your current book, uh, because at the time you wrote Game Changers, very influential, uh, loads and loads of case studies in there. We've gone through this whole process where the disruptors have, have come along and completely changed and everything's as a service now. Um, was that going on at the time that you were writing Game Changers? Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, it was really the last financial crisis, the, the financial crisis of um, 2008, 2009, which, which really shook things up a lot. And that was the moment when we had digital technologies, but they were still kind of in their infancy and they were in startups and they were kind of on the, on, on the, on the periphery, you could argue in many ways. So companies had websites, but they weren't really fundamentally changing what they were doing. They're just using them as a, a brochure, if you like. But 2008, 2009 uh, was the birth of a new generation of companies um, who really started to use digital technologies and the power of networks within those technologies. Um, and companies like Airbnb and Uber, for example, they were both born in 2008. And they started to create a new genre of businesses, uh, platform businesses, as we now know them. Platform businesses being kind of these digital platforms which bring lots and lots of buyers and lots and lots of sellers together. Now, there had been companies like Alibaba and, and so on who'd started to do that, but they really took off in a big way after that shakeup of the financial crisis. And you see every financial crisis where it shakes things up and it accelerates some trends and it kind of kills off other trends and, and, and accelerates some businesses and kills off other businesses. So we saw that acceleration coming beforehand. And then I think you know, what happened after that was people realized the power of business models. And what I saw was that lots of companies were starting to change their marketplaces, not just change their businesses, but change their marketplaces too. And the traditional boundaries uh, of which markets existed, such as you know, we were a bank or we were a media company or we we're a gaming company, were suddenly blurring. And so what I wanted to write about really was, was the, the, the change in markets so, and how companies were, were able to, to create their own markets. They were able to, to create their own game. And so really in game changes, the idea is that um, the game which you're changing is actually the marketplace. It's, it's how the market works. You know, if you think about it like a sports game, you know, the sports game has rules, it has a pitch size, it has two teams, it has one ball, it has so many points for a win or a loss. And, and these are all analogous to, to the business world. It has a certain size, you, get, you, you play in certain ways, it has certain price points and, and all the rest of it. But you could all change all of those things. You could have two balls. You could make, you know, like uh, like the way cricket 2020 has changed. You could change the, the 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 duration of the match if you like. You could change the number of players, and either by kind of natural evolution or by um, companies choosing to change the game by which they were they were they were playing there in the market. Um, companies were able to to radically shift, and so they were starting to be able to create their own space. So instead of kind of like um, playing as a soft drinks company, because there's always been soft drinks company, Red Bull came in and they said, we can create an energy drink. And there was no such market as an energy drink, but they created a market, they created a new game. And they could choose what price point they wanted to sell that at. They could choose when, who and when they wanted to sell that. And so um, the, the intuitive rules, if you like, uh, were created by Red Bull for energy drinks. 
And so you can shape markets the way you want to. And that's really what Game Changers is doing. And, and this, the technology, but the mindset that you could change your business model, the mindset that you didn't have to just compete within a fixed space, those mindsets were breaking quite quickly. And so in 2015, Game Changers came out and it really was kind of um, a wake up call to a lot of companies today um, who've now kind of gone much further um, in terms of how they can, they, can, they can really change the game. So now you're recoding business. You've, uh, you've got a new paradigm and um, it's going to keep us very busy. And is this, is this about purpose and profit? Is it about finding a way in a society where everything needs to be sustainable or, or is that just part of it? It's part of it. Um, it's part of it because I think, um, think that's absolutely core. Um, but it's not something you do in isolation. And so we're not gonna kind of change the planet and we're not gonna kind of be incredibly successful, sustainable businesses just by focusing on sustainability. Um, we need to focus on the whole thing. So that's why I think you know, many companies, when they've tried to look at sustainability in the past, they've, they've made only kind of small impacts or perhaps certainly not the impact which they could make. Um, by doing CSR initiatives, by kind of, you know, building a playground for children, by having a CSR report, by having a CSR officer. It, it really needs to be more than that. It needs to be fundamental. It needs to be what the CEO and what the whole kind of executive team uh, are doing. And it needs to be core to the products and services which they develop and how they develop them and, and, and what people get from them and why they actually buy them. So to do that, you make sustainability core to the business. And you know, what's, what's really kind of interesting right now is we're at this, this maelstrom of kind of uh, multiple forces kind of bashing together. And even before the pandemic, you know, we had this, 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 this kind of collision of forces and collision of forces, I mean, um, technology. So technology has accelerated since, you know, since we were talking about. It. So the new technologies like artificial intelligence and blockchain and 3D printing, they are really fundamentally changing how people make decisions, uh, the ways in which supply chains work, for example, um, and the ways in which people buy products and services. And so, so technology is really becoming disruptive in a massive way and will fundamentally um, disrupt every business over the next 10 years. Then you've got the kind of the shift in power. So markets have really changed quite dramatically. So the shift of power towards Asia, the shift of power towards small businesses, um, the shift of power actually towards family businesses as well, so to private companies. And so this shift of power has been quite um, phenomenal. And so now you've got you know, companies, the companies I admire most. So you know, it might be Alibaba and Baidu, but also companies like Ping An and Pinduoduo are, are phenom phenomenal companies right now. And so these kinds of new generation of companies are harnessing the new marketplaces where growth is actually happening. You know, there's this trillion dollar or 10 trillion dollar, I think it is actually estimated as new middle class within China and the surrounding parts of Asia. So that's where the action is. Um, and that's another force. Then you've got the climate change, um, but it's not just a climate crisis, which absolutely it is. And we have to fundamentally change in order to, to, to solve that, but it's also a social crisis. So social inequality um, has been exasperated even more by, by what's happened over the last nine months. And then finally, we've got what's, what's happened over nine months, this pandemic, which is a health crisis, but also an economic crisis. And as we talked about beforehand, you know, crises are the moments when 
markets are really shaken up. You know, there's a great quote, 57% of, of companies are created during a downturn. So if you look back from McDonald's through to Apple, Microsoft, to, to Airbnb and Uber, all of those kind of companies were created in tough times when people had to do things differently, when consumers thought differently, and there was the environment to, to really disrupt things in a more radical way. So if you bring those four horses together, you go, wow, is our business really gonna exist in the way which it was doing business in 2019? And any sane executive will probably conclude not. And so that's why I think now is the time you need to really quite radically think about how do you, do you look forwards and perhaps recode your business. So think differently about what is the code for success. So the code for success in terms of what is your output and that's where purpose and profit come together and how you can, can combine those, do those things together. Um, for how business can be a platform for good. And I think, you know, businesses actually can change the world in ways governments and other kind of NGOs and institutions perhaps can't even. So business has this huge amount of resource or asset um, in the sense of being able to funnel consumer desire and consumer demand in certain ways. And if you create products and services, which, which consumers want, um, then they'll go for them. And if those products and services happen to be meeting their needs, but also meeting the greater needs of the world at the same time, then it's a double whammy. They, can, they, they have even more reason to buy it. And so being able to then do good every time you buy something, a bit like Tom Shoes did um, starting 10 years ago, then if every product or brand was able to do that, then people could start to make a real difference. And then consumers to consumers start to connect to each other and they start to influence each other in terms of these behaviors. And behind that, you've then got a fundamentally different uh, organization. So they're driven in terms of coding their, their output or their, their results differently, but they also then realize that they can code the way they do it differently. So they don't have to make everything themselves, for example. So the way in which the most of the Asian or particularly the Chinese companies succeed is through ecosystems. And gradually, you know, Western businesses are recognizing that an ecosystem kind of model where we can share resources, where we work with many more different partners allows us to do things which we couldn't do ourselves. So it doesn't mean that we have to create all the things which are required in order to be able to deliver our promise to our customer. And it goes on, therefore, because we therefore um, uh, need to organize people differently. So uh, we've seen the rise of the gig worker. So the, the code for organizations changes instead of the hierarchy, which is to do with that traditional power and to the traditional ways of everybody getting treated the same and products being standardized and just searching for efficiency. That hierarchy structure is now not needed because you want much more creativity, you want to personalize for each person. And we realize that you know, efficiency is not the way in which we achieve growth ultimately. And it's not certainly not the way in which we achieve uh, more enlightened purpose. So organizations are changing. So you recode the way people work, um, the way people kind of come together collaboratively as teams. So when you start to bring all of that together, you get a new kind of blueprint, a new vision as to how organizations can both operate, but also can succeed in very different markets. It's really interesting, actually, when you were talking, I was thinking about SAP because they have adopted this idea of an ecosystem whereby um, 
smaller partners like um, InCloud Solutions, who I work for, create some of the technology themselves. So the partners are being encouraged to develop, um, you know, apps so that the intellectual property isn't all coming from the center. The intellectual property is coming from a huge ecosystem worldwide who are feeding in to what this technology company can offer. Would you think that SAP, for example, was one of these companies who's, who's positioning themselves in that way? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I was sitting in a forum and it was actually a Microsoft forum in Los Angeles last year. And I was staggered when Satya Nadella was speaking and I was listening to him speak. Great admiration for Satya Nadella and what he's done for, for Microsoft. And he, he, halfway through the presentation, he, he brought Bill McDermott on the stage. Bill McDermott being the, the co-CEO of, of SAP and also Adobe. So, you know, imagine Microsoft a few years ago bringing a company who you could regard as a competitor onto its stage at its own events. And, you know, the three CEOs were standing there, the three different companies, you know, in some ways they were competitors, but they were also recognizing that there's bigger challenges and bigger opportunities in the world, which they could actually address together as opposed to apart. I think you see that all over the place today. You see companies, you know, much more um, cooperating as, and collaborating um, instead of competing in the traditional sense. And the great thing with small businesses, which you talked about being, is they bring you know, niche kind of uh, emergent kind of perspectives as well as talents and as well as solutions, which, which big companies perhaps aren't able to think about or don't have the time or the, the perspectives to think about. And so, you know, bringing together the speedboats, as I call them, the small companies, together with the super tankers, really creates a new armada <laughs> To, to, to address some of the challenges which companies by themselves and or opportunities which companies by themselves couldn't really seize um, in today's complex but kind of fast-changing world. You also talk about courage um, in Business Recoded, about business leaders having to have courage. Is that because some of these um, ideas are counterintuitive, you know, for example, coming together with a competitor? Absolutely. Um, so so that's, that, that requires courage. It requires courage to kind of challenge the norms in terms of uh, creating organizations where you know you may not employ people or you may kind of have a four-day week or you may kind of have no roles and job descriptions so if you like you know most of the organizations which i see are now shifting much more towards project culture um so say 80 or 90 percent of people are, are, are working on projects constantly they don't have actual line roles and line managers in the traditional sense so they don't have Job descriptions in this in, in 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 the traditional sense, so they're much more fluid, or they're not, you know, or they're or they're not employed by the company, and so they're they're coming together in this much more flexible way. That requires courage. Thinking about um, saying to your shareholders that we're going to give a bigger proportion of of what was your dividend, and we're going to give it to society instead, requires courage, or reinvest it in the business. Um, so all of these things require courage, and so. You know, I think now is the moment when business leaders need to, 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 to have the guts to, to step up and kind of to, to see the world differently and start creating the future as opposed to just keep stretching the past. And courage is a really interesting subject. So, you know, I, I, in, in writing the book, I, I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people about what really drives courage. And actually, the first case study in the book is not a business person. It's, it's Elliot Kipchoge, the guy the Kenyan marathon runner who became the first person to break two hours and really understanding the mindset, the psyche, 
which um, which allowed him to think differently that two hours was possible and then to set off with a pace which most people would think would be suicidal, i.e. they wouldn't finish, um, but actually to, to set up at that pace, to bring together a support team, a medical, a technological support team, which kind of gave him everything which he could have to, to, to help him to get over that barrier. And, but then still as a human being, as an individual to get there was phenomenal. And then we looked at other people, you know, people like um, Tan Lee. Tan Lee was a four-year-old um, refugee from Vietnam um, who found herself with her mother and her sisters on board a, a refugee boat in the South China Sea. Um, her father was left behind in Vietnam fighting a civil war. But her mother tried to take her to safety. After a few days, the boat ran out of fuel and they were drifting helplessly in the South China Sea. Fortunately for Tan Lee, she was picked up by a, 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 an oil tanker. The oil tanker took the family to Australia and she, she started to build a new life there. Um, but being a, a refugee and being Vietnamese, she was different. She, she kind of, you know, she found herself bullied. She found herself left, left behind because she couldn't speak English so well. And so she had to kind of fight back over all the odds. So she built up a kind of a personal resilience and a personal courage through her childhood. When she came to the point of, um, of going to university, her mother dreamt of her becoming a doctor. You know, that was the dream of her mother. Um, so she kind of went along with it, but within the first year, she realized she didn't want to be a doctor. She was, she was really enthused by technology. So she had the courage to, to defy her mother. And so she kind of um, started exploring technology. To cut a long story short, 15 years later, she is now the world's leader in terms of brain control technologies. So, you know, a great person who's triumphed over adversity, but also have the courage built up over time to do that. And I think today's leaders need that courage. We can't just kind of step up to the leadership team or step up even within the leadership team to the job. Being able to, to, to really think about where do you want to take the business forward to next? And that requires, you know, as I said, guts, but it also requires a vulnerability. You know, if you look at a lot of the business leaders who I've talked to, so, you know, people like um, Satya Nadella himself or, you know, Ali Parsa, who's championed healthcare in the, in the UK with digital health and really AI-based healthcare. You know, a school teacher from, from Denmark who created the world's largest craft beer company by thinking differently about using platform technology and bringing lots and lots of microbrewery and small craft beer companies together as one large kind of network or ecosystem of beer. Um, all of these companies and all of these people you know, have demonstrated tremendous kind of courage to think beyond the norm, to think, well, the future isn't something which is just out there or coming towards us. The future is something which we can create. And you know, that's, that's the really exciting thing. The future is something which we can shape. And if I was to say to you, there's probably going to be more change in the next 10 years than the last uh, 250 years. I know it sounds like a glib comment, but think about what's happened in the last 250 years since the steam engine. If I'm going to say there's more change than that in the next 10 years, we really need leaders, if their businesses are going to succeed and if they're going to thrive in this new time, to have incredible courage to do things which they never imagined before. And we need to look at the people who are going to be leading us in the next 10 to 20 years. Some of those will be our kids. I understand that you've got a couple of lovely teenage girls. So do I. We can learn from them, can't we? I mean, I wouldn't know very much about TikTok or Snapchat if it wasn't for my girls. 
Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I've got two daughters. One is um, 18 and one is 21. And uh, the, the elder one, actually, she's, she's at university studying psychology. And I, I actually turned to her in writing the latest book, Business Recoded, and for her, for her help. So, you know, understanding some of the kind of psychology theories, some of the emergent practices, um, and being able to connect them to some of the, the, the kind of business practices and areas such as courage, actually, um, where the psychologists argue to have courage, you need to be much more vulnerable, you need to kind of be much more open and you need to kind of, you know, to, to be more, more genuine and authentic as a, as a person in order to be more courageous. I think in general, you know, children, in the way in which they think, in the way in which they connect, obviously, you know, there's social media, there's the, the Snapchats, there's the TikToks and all that kind of stuff, which you, you need to be pretty active to keep on top of. And you know, if you look at the ways in which, you know, even you know, LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter, the, the, the social media, which perhaps uh, business people are more familiar with, they are changing rapidly very, in very similar ways to what Snapchat and TikTok are doing. But I think beyond that is also the, the, the mindset, the psyche of the new generation. So the generation um, Z and, and beyond. And you know, what's interesting is that, you know, they, they actually have a great care for the world. Um, so in terms of the, the new generations, you know, actually coming through now, the ones who are kind of in the junior management roles within business, they actually really do care that business is doing good. They don't want to work just for a big company because it's famous or successful. They want to work for a company where they can see and they can make personally some, some meaningful impact. So all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, in a sense, what we're, we as older people are banging on about should be the right thing. They just do naturally. They don't, they, they, they almost don't question. So they're not um, techno uh, obsessed, actually. They're quite human. Um, and they are not profit obsessed or materialistic obsessed as we might think. Um, they're actually quite uh, enlightened in their thinking about the world in which they want to, to create. And so, you know, I think actually we can learn a lot from our kids and what, what's happening is certainly we shouldn't kind of just stereotype people in terms of all generations are the same or, you know, certain types of people are the same. But um, I think we can actually learn an awful lot from young people. And we're starting to recognize in the same way as hierarchies have crumbled, age hierarchies have crumbled as well. And so it's not the length of experience which actually drives the, the ability to make a good decision. It's not the length of uh, experience which drives the ability to create a great product or service. Um, all of these things, you know, creativity, um, for example, can come from anywhere. Creativity can come from all sorts of different perspectives. And it's about how do you bring these much more diverse teams, and that might be diversity in terms of background, diversity in terms of sex, diversity in terms of age, you know, and much more. It's how you bring you know, different perspectives and different talents together which will make teams successful in this kind of crazy, changing, exciting, curious, unpredictable world. Peter Fisk, thank you so much for your time. Peter's book, Business Recoded, is out now, and you can work with him by looking him up online at thegeniusworks.com. That's it for this episode. If you're enjoying these conversations, then please consider subscribing to The Growth Business on Apple Podcasts, and the usual channels. Until next time, goodbye.